Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. This is your host, Dan Turchin, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Thanks, as always, for turning this passion project into one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you like what we do, and I certainly hope you do, please give us a like, a comment, share this episode in your favorite podcast app. We really value your feedback. It's always appreciated. We've been discussing the ethics of AI recently. Uh, Dr. Mark discussed how to mitigate the impact of biased training data. And then a few weeks back, we had a fascinating conversation with Tiernan Ray from ZDNet, among others, uh, about that problem, but kind of in a more social context. The recurring theme is that humans are responsible for decisions made by machines. As much as that may sound controversial, it shouldn't be. AI can't be another way for big tech to weaponize your data against you. As a community of technologists, it's up to us to self-regulate to ensure that algorithms are trained, deployed, and monitored responsibly. Today, we've got a real treat. We get to meet one of the highest profile advocates for the practice of responsible AI. Krishna Gade founded Fiddler in 2018 to make AI explainable. He and the team recently raised $32 million Series B, led by some of the most respected investors, including Lightspeed, Bloomberg Beta, and the Alexa Fund. Prior to Fiddler, Krishna held senior roles at Facebook and also at Pinterest. I strongly encourage you to learn what it takes to productize that kind of ambiguous term we call responsible AI by reading up on the latest, go to fiddler.ai. It is the most mature platform I've seen that tightly packages a lot of what we've all read in white papers and speeches and research into something that really is a, a shovel-ready toolkit for AI practitioners. With that said, Krishna, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Why don't you uh, get started by sharing a little bit about your background and how you got into this space? Yeah, thank you for the kind words, Dan. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on this podcast. And uh, yeah, so uh, where do I start? <laughs> you know, I'm an engineer by background. You know, I, I came to the States in 2001 to pursue graduate school. And after that, you know, I held, you know, software engineering and engineering leadership roles at Microsoft, Twitter, Pinterest, and Facebook. So I was actually part of this whole, you know, big data and machine learning and AI revolution, especially in the consumer internet companies to create analytics and machine learning based products for end users, whether that's, you know, Bing search or recommendations or ads type of products that these companies have produced at scale. During that process, uh, when I was at Facebook, I was exposed to this uh, concept of uh, model explainability. Uh, so when I was leading this uh, ranking platform team at uh, in 2016, Facebook was running a lot of complex machine learning models to predict you know, what kind of uh, recommendations that we should show or what kind of ads. And one of the main problems was these models were huge black boxes. We didn't really know how they're making their predictions. And if an exec were to ask us, you know, hey, why am I seeing this ad? The engineer would not be able to answer it very well or, or at least quickly enough. 
So uh, given like the importance of transparency and rebuilding customer trust at Facebook, you know, some of which had to do with the 2016 elections and, and some, some of the customer's impressions on the company, this became a high profile project within the company. And, you know, we built lots of tools to monitor, debug, explain machine learning models at scale and to provide, you know, insights for developers to build better models but also you know, share uh, how these models are working across the organization, create a sense of transparency. So that's what you know, led me to start Fiddler because at the time I saw that a company like Facebook could do it, but what about everyone else, right? And why should everyone redo it? And so uh, I you know, started working on Fiddler, left Facebook, and basically we wanted to build a general purpose uh, platform that helps enterprise companies across the board to build trustworthy AI products. And today we have a product in the market, we call it a model performance management system. It essentially helps data science and machine learning teams to continuously monitor their AI and machine learning applications in production at scale, help them diagnose performance issues and help them explain how these models are working to various stakeholders. AI explainability can often seem like kind of esoteric, kind of academic topic. Um, one of the things I mentioned kind of in the, in, in the intro is you found a way to productize it. And what I'd like to learn is, or help you help the audience understand is how do you take something that's a little mm-hmm. bit of a, an amorphous concept and turn it into a, like I said, kind of a framework or a toolkit for AI yeah. practitioners? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Uh, One of the main challenges with machine learning and AI is the proliferation of machine learning libraries. You know, you know, there's no universal format. There's no one single way to build an ML model. You know, uh, you could be building a neural network or a or a decision tree. You could be using a TensorFlow library or a PyTorch library, and there's no standardization anywhere, right? And the algorithms keep coming. New model architectures keep getting invented. So it, it was, uh, you know, we, we needed to make a choice of what, how do we productize it at scale so that we can at least cover 80 plus percent of the use cases, right? So what we have indexed upon was a, a certain class of explainability algorithms called attribution-based algorithms that treat the model more or less as a black box and try to probe the models with, you know, changing the inputs. You know, for example, let's say if I have an underwriting model that is making predictions of how risky a particular loan application is. And it might be looking at a few variables like the loan amount requested, you know, the FICO score of the person or maybe the income of the person, right? Now, these attribution-based algorithms, what they do is they generate lots and lots of counterfactual inputs, which means it makes small perturbations to to the inputs for the same loan application and try how the model is actually making those predictions. And based on that, they make some statistical estimations around which input is actually having a huge impact on the model's output, and then attribute that as an explanation. So they may say, hey, you know, this person is asking for a $10,000 loan amount that is actually increasing his risk profile by 20%, or this person's income is actually, you know, only $100,000, uh, that's increasing her risk by you know 25% or something like that based on that 
and it's personalized to that particular loan application or whatever data point that you're trying to explain. And so by actually indexing on that, we were then able to build a platform that can then digest all these different model architectures, model types, and run these explainability algorithms on those model types at scale so that we can then visualize them in a consistent way. Uh, but we still needed to make sure that the, the visualizations are suited to the data types. So for example, if you have more structured data, like in the example that I gave, we will show a certain kind of visualization that is more of a tabular way of manipulating inputs. If it's like a unstructured data with like a piece of text, we allow for you know changing words and replacing words and things like that. So we show a certain type of visualization to explain the model's outputs. So that was a you know successful experience, and we see now customers you know benefiting from it and being able to probe these models and understand how these models work. So in AI, we typically measure the performance of a model using a, a rock curve. We compare precision and recall. We don't often think about explainability as kind of a third axis. Convince us, what, you know, why does yeah. explainability matter as much as precision and recall? Absolutely. So when you rewind a few years ago, right, um, when people were building, say, simple linear models or logistic regression models, uh, you could actually understand how the model works by looking at the weights of the model. You could say that, okay, you know, this particular parameter has the highest weight, so it'll have the, you know, uh, uh, you can basically try to reason about how these models would work, right? However, as the models became more and more complex, with like multi-layers of neural networks and deep neural networks, boosted trees, ensembles of these models, it's very hard to know what's going on. While we have achieved tremendous, uh, you know, accomplishments in terms of accuracy of models. You know, we have seen ImageNet accomplishments. We've seen so many other AI use cases where AI is able to beat humans and is able to make predictions at scale. There is not knowing how it works can actually cause a lot of risks. So for example, when it fails, and if it, and if it fails, you know, in a, in a, for a certain demographic of people or for a certain type, for a certain set of users that your organization might care, then it can, and if you don't know how it works, then it becomes like a, a big problem for the company's reputation, right? So for example, a couple of years ago, Apple launched a credit card to make uh, predictions. Uh, so to essentially set, uh, uh, they were using machine learning to set credit card limits, right? And what, and it was a very seamless process. You could just apply for it and you could get it immediately. However, the problem was, uh, within the same household, some people experienced 10 times of differences in credit limits being set between a, a man and a woman, a, a husband and a wife. Typically, the wife got like, you know, lower the lower credit limit, right? And when some of these people went online and complained about it, you know, Goldman Sachs customer support didn't have great answers. In fact, one of the users mentioned on Twitter that they, the, the answer from the customer support team was, we don't know, it's just the algorithm. Now that is a, that is basically became a big news story. There was a regulatory probe conducted into Goldman Sachs and, and eventually sort of, you know, uh, you know, they had to make some corrections. Now, this is a case where you have AI or machine learning, 
you know failing and and potentially you know the the company may not know what's going on or they may not be able to diagnose how this could have happened and in this case you know if you if you had explainability tools or model monitoring tools you could catch them early on uh, when you are actually training and testing these models you may have had a high accuracy overall but maybe there was a certain segment of population uh, that were getting affected in negative manner by the model and and that's not captured by these high level metrics and this is where explainability will give you a lens to look into the model and see how it's performing across the board and and then you know take a decision whether you want to deploy it or and then also monitor it properly great example so you mentioned ai today is unregulated in how it's used like so the apple example is is really good one and and yet increasingly it's quite prevalent in terms of where and how ai is used to make automated decisions if uh, you were the president or the emperor or you know the prime minister and and someone said you know hey krishna you know what should we do to regulate you know responsible use of ai how do we do it given that we're starting from zero absolutely that's a great question uh, see i think governments are realizing the importance of regulating ai europe is, uh, is definitely ahead of america in this in this in this case um recently they've launched a gdpr like regulation for ai where they used terms like trust is a must with ai uh you need if you're building ai applications you need to ex- you need to be able to explain them and you need to be able to like you need to have you know certain practices and processes in place such as like monitoring and periodic testing of these models and the reason why this is important is because machine learning and ai are touching our human lives at and at a scale that is unprecedented right 20 years ago maybe most of these machine learning models in these internet companies were only used to supply ads it wasn't it was not it's not a big deal if you're seeing if you're shown a wrong ad right but what if this model is predicting you know i'm trying to refinance my house and i'm going to, let's say i'm going to a fintech company that makes mortgage uh, recommendations from me what what if if i don't get approved what if what if like you know what if like my, if i'm applying for a loan and my resume is getting screened by an ai and it's get it gets rejected and what if this is happening at scale and it's affecting certain kind of certain type of people in a negative manner right because how these ai systems are trained what kind of data that they're being used is not is not fair uh, because the world is not fair and it's not equitable right so these are the concerns that people you know from amongst like users that are coming forward and that's making governments think about it you know one of the first things you the us should do is to you know look into the algorithmic accountability act you know um, it's um, it's something that you know uh, that the congress has been working on for almost 2 3 years now to regulate ai and create accountability across these companies and i think i would try to like look into how do we actually get that over the line right so that's that's something that is very important for us to be able to do as soon as possible i would fully support anything that uh, you or fiddler are doing to uh, advance that through congress i know that it's moving at glacial speed but uh, yeah that algorithmic accountability act would be a good at least a good uh, certainly a good a good first step now famously i recall an incident where uh, your former employer facebook uh designed uh, uh i think it might have been gan or something it 
a generative adversarial network. And it was two bots that ended up inventing a language of their own. Um, now for deep neural nets or GANs or you know, really complex AI-based environments, sometimes even the developers are, are unable to deconstruct what happened to produce the outputs. Um, is it reasonable to expect that any AI, like that example of Facebook, can be made to be explainable? Yeah, so the, the more complex the system is, the more complex it will be to explain it, right? So um, it's, it's, it's essentially what it is, right? So, however, uh, you know, for a lot of, you know, these models, you know, when they are, you know, when they are building these systems, um, they, they are essentially a set of ensemble models that are coming together to make a decision. So at the very least, you can actually deconstruct at like individual model level to identify how the models are making this, you know, predictions. And you can try to sort of, uh, you know, do some uh, global analysis where you can run it against, you know, different examples um, uh, where you can actually uh, see how the model is predicting across different types of examples. Maybe like if you want to check for bias within the model, you know, how do you, uh, you know, surface up like, you know, certain types of data sets that you can uh, test the model against and see how it's performing, right? Uh, so, yeah, so the short answer is, yeah, can you explain everything that's out that's being created? No, but you can try uh, definitely to, to try hard to actually do it. The, the problem today with the industry is not so much around lack of tools, right? There is like, you know, pretty good open source libraries with, for explainability. There are tools like Fiddler that they're trying to build to, take this enterprise, it's actually the will uh, for the executives to, you know, to push for this within their organization, to think about these things, you know, to, to make sure that they have this process and practice in place to, to use these tools to develop uh, and, and, and sort of make sure that their AI is responsible. So, um, so that's that's the that is what we are trying to evangelize more. Uh, there are obviously forward-looking companies, some of our customers that partnered with us, have been they have this at the top of the mind and you know uh, they want to make sure that uh, they're building responsible ai for their customers and as well as for their own organization but uh, it has to percolate across the industry so let's say one of your customers comes to you and says you know i get the need for explainability i'm going to obviously use fiddler for that but i've also heard that uh, biased data can lead to biased models um, what's your coaching for AI developers who yeah. genuinely want to mitigate the impact of bias, but aren't sure where to start. Absolutely. So explainability is an enabler, right? So it helps you look into what's going on with the model. So for example, if you go back to that underwriting model example, it let's say now I have created a model, I want to deploy it. But before you do it, can we run it against a few examples? Can we run it against you know, different segments of population that your users may be under, maybe you know, you may have different types of people, you know, from different ethnicities, different uh, backgrounds, and how is the model doing across that? And and see if the model is performing equitably across all of those, you know, classes, protected classes, or intersections of protected classes, right? Like, say, you may have, you know, a racial, uh, in, so a race as a protected class, marital status, or age, or, you know, gender, all of those things, you know, you want to see how the model is doing, right? And and Fiddler helps you to get like a model scorecard 
that gives you a holistic picture of how the model is doing across all of these protected classes and intersections of them and helps you identify these segments where the model is underperforming. And not only that, you can then look into those segments to identify the reasons why the model may be underperforming using explainability. So, so these are interlinked. So how you assess fairness and then once you, assess, once you identify a poor performance, and then identifying the reasons behind it uh, is where explainability will help you. So one of the adjacent threads here is that uh, as AI gets better and hopefully it's more explainable and hopefully it's being used responsibly, um, more and more tasks are going to be automated using AI. When I look at the world that my, uh, my daughters are inheriting and I look at, you know, they're on the cusp of, you know, going into high school and what are the skills that they should be learning and where are their passions? Um, I'd like them to invest in skills that are not likely to be automated in the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years. What are those skills that just will never be good candidates for automation? Yeah, the skills that make us humans. I think they will never be replicated or will be far uh, down the timeline that, you know, if ever the AI system will be able to replicate it, right? You know, things that make us humans, you know, emotional intelligence, you know, soft skills, uh, things that, you know, create like creativity, human creativity of being able to uh, map ideas from one to another and think about new things, right? So those are the things that uh, I think it'll be hard for AI systems to replicate. What will be automated is things that we are more rote and repetitive work, right? You know, where you can crunch a lot of, you know, uh, data at scale and be able to make uh, uh, high quality predictions. So for example, my dad was an underwriter uh, in an insurance company for a number of years, right? So they would look at actuarial tables uh, into into sort of how like how how do you you know would, what kind of policy premium would you set for a life insurance applicant? Um, those things can be done with machine learning um, because you can uh, you essentially uh, you have if you if you can train uh, the model with sufficiently large enough data set and make sure that it's performing well, then it can make those predictions, and you can also eliminate human bias that may have that may exist, that may have existed in the past. However, even in those cases, there will be some human element involved because uh, especially to provide customer support to the experience. So the humans like in those cases, maybe if my, if, if my dad were to work like maybe 20 years down the line, maybe his experience would be not so much around figuring out like the, the math uh, and how to use actual tables, but, all, but more around how to make like the customer experience better, how to build relationships and use the system as, as a sort of a, as a tool to help the customer, right? So I think that will be the shift that we would see in, in the future of work with humans to use these tools and do like think, do, do the tasks that make us humans. And, you know, and I think that's where I think we should have our kids, you know, uh, spend more time on along with obviously uh, some, the more technical subjects if they're interested. Um, it's the soft skills that they need to develop. You are solving such a big problem and you and Fiddler are off to such a good start. You, you've had an amazing amount of success even just in a short time. Talk to us about your entrepreneurial journey so far. What is What has surprised you most about the experience? Yeah, so I think uh, when we started, we didn't realize how lofty, what kind of a mission that we are on, right? So when we started in 2018 to make AI explainable, to build trust into AI, um, you know, when you're in this thing where you're trying to uh, build a product MVP, you're trying to figure out how to do this, you kind of 
don't um, see how much impact it can have on the world. And as things unfolded, as the events like Apple Card or, or many such events that have happened, we realized the importance of the the the, the impact that this company has. So we are we are we're actually extremely lucky to be in a space where we're building a company that has they're solving a very important like you know technical problem within the within the machine learning industry it's like very hard technical problem how do you explain a complex machine learning model it's it's very very hard right uh it something that can be made into viable business something that we are able to prove but also more importantly there is like it has a social component to it right whatever we are doing is ultimately we want to we're trying to help, you know make the world a better place and i think that that i think is what excites you know all the employees at fiddler and also excites us and because you don't get those opportunities everyone every time especially when you're trying to build enterprise software you know it's so much disconnected from the rest of the society usually you know you're, you're trying to build a you know great database you know you don't really know how what kind of social impact you may have right but fiddler uh, it's, it's it's a different feeling so that's a that was a huge surprise that i didn't expect when i started and then the second thing was you know how much people were willing to help you know so many people especially given the category that we selected and people like you who have come forward to actually you know help us along the way evangelize it and you know take this movement forward so you're an engineer by training but now all of a sudden you're the head of hr and you're the head of sales and marketing and 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 fundraising and uh, and operations which of those skills have you felt like uh, it was the weakest muscle that you've had to uh, <laughs> spend some time in the gym on absolutely yeah so i think uh, some things that i've done as an engineering manager in the past had had come in handy so for example I was managing teams for a few years before so it helped me recruit it helped me sell a little bit of vision right um you know recruiting is also a little bit like sales but you know the 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 thing that was very hard to master in initial days was just doing enterprise sales right because uh there's a process towards it there's actually a way to make sure that you know your uh, you you have to have like a pretty rigorous pro- sales process to be able to successfully you know take a customer through that uh, and then also the thing that we've learned over time is how much especially when you're building an, a product in the enterprise space how much the product development and the go to market uh, are coupled you know how you know they're so interwoven and uh, and so and you have to think about them both of them all the time and 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 so that was another uh, learning experience um, um, so there are obviously you know lots of help online but you never learn these things un- un- until and unless you do them right we had great advisors you know our investors helped us a lot but you know we made mistakes uh, and sort of learned from those mistakes and you know tried to sort of uh, keep making some new mistakes i would guess but you know it's that's been it's been a fun journey so far krishna i got to get you off the hot seat but not without uh, one last question you know ceos everyone looks to you for the answers and one of the things that makes it challenging is that we don't always have the right answers in fact sometimes there isn't a right answer and yet you're still going to be asked to have one uh where would you say you're comfortable being vulnerable and you know is there any example of where you've been comfortable hiring someone you know more more qualified than you are because you know it's it's a kind of a known gap in your skill set yeah, absolutely yeah i think it started from day 1 itself right one of the things that i 
thought that was important for a product like Fiddler to be successful was to have someone who has a great sense of, you know, UX design visualization. So my co-founder who built a lot of consumer internet apps and a great designer himself, um, you know, I, you know, I picked him because, you know, he was, he was great at doing these things. And, 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 and so I, I have no idea about, about design or use, you know, sort of visualization, which is a very important part of what Fiddler is today. And, and same thing, and same thing continues across the board. I think one of the things that I've realized watching, I've been fortunate to have worked in some really great companies. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have seen some great companies from the very early stages, like, like, like when I was like at Twitter, it was a hundred people when I joined. So I watched some of the founders up, up and close. I was very inspired by some of these founders, especially like when I was a, an employee at Pinterest, one of the core values of the company was authenticity which I actually remember. So it's, I think we've tried to imbibe some of those cultural attributes uh, when we started Fiddler. Yeah. Uh, do I have answers for every single question that my employees ask? No, but we don't have any problem admitting that we don't know about them and we'll try hard to figure out the answers. And, and I think that is, that is one thing that, you know, you know uh, we have been very clear from, from day one. Krishna, it's really been enjoyable. I, I've been looking forward to this and certainly I, I learned a lot from you and, as a fan of Fiddler, one thing I'd like before we, we leave you today is uh, share with the audience, where can they learn more? Absolutely. See, I think uh, when we are at this inflection point where every software that we have interacted with is going to get reformatted to be AI-based and model-based software. And especially if you're on the, on the field, you know this, you know, if you're a machine learning engineer, you're a data engineer watching, you know, these systems moving from traditional rule-based uh, or, you know, quantitative model-based systems moving towards, you know, machine learning and AI-based systems. And it's very important for us, uh, for this for this to be successful, to be able to make sure that we are creating enough transparency into how these systems are working, both for ourselves as well as for our entire organization, right? And I think, uh, and I think it's a uh, it, it's, it, it not only helps us to use AI in a, in a, in a more, much more efficient manner, but also helps us you know, build responsible products for our customers. And we are very excited to take this mission forward, uh, to bridge this gap between the human and the AI system so that human can trust the AI and, and, and then sort of uh, benefit from it. And so if you're interested to either work with us or work for us, you know, hit me up, you know, um, Krishna at Fiddler.ai. Thank you, Krishna. And uh feels like we're just getting started. Fiddler has so much growth ahead of it. Uh, maybe uh, we'll, we'll have you back on another episode and have the next version of this conversation. What do you say? Absolutely, Dan. Uh, it's, it was a pleasure. And I love the questions and uh, looking forward to the podcast. Well, again, thanks to Krishna. Thanks to Fiddler. That's a wrap for this week. This is your host, Dan Turchin. Sign it off, but back next week with another fascinating guest.